So I'm speaking to you this morning about responding to grief. I've entitled my message, Healing Balm for Hurting Believers. We all face grief at different times. How should a believer respond to grief? What should our response be? Many of us have faced that question in the last year and a half because of COVID. We've had people in our church who've died of COVID. So we've had to go through some grief. But if we haven't gone through it in this last year and a half, you're going to go through it in the upcoming years. We all know that no one escapes going through grief. So how should we respond? I read an article that got me thinking about this by Ben Flegel that kind of allowed my thoughts to kind of coalesce together. Inevitably, grief and sorrow at some point will stampede their way into your life. We want to be ready. We want to respond biblically. Your response to grief, to tragedy, will be determined by the kind of loss you experience, your own personality, your sinful tendencies, your belief in God, your knowledge of the Scriptures. You're going to respond according to a kind of a number of different items. But grief is going to come knocking. And when grief comes knocking, it may come in different ways for different people. Maybe a, a crippling car accident leaves you handicapped or someone in your family handicapped. It may come through the birth of a child that has a serious learning problem or physical liability. It may come through a terminal disease, someone in your family, or through a bitter divorce that has left you just trembling or sudden loss of a loved one. All of us will face grief multiple times in our life. Starry and I came to, in those days, South Sheridan Baptist Church in 1984, which was the forerunner of Red Rocks Baptist Church. We came in 84. Five years later, 1989, our third child was born. His name was Clinton Sterling, Clinton Sterling Hines. He was born that fall of 89. And in January, I was down in Arizona. I had begun a degree, a doctor of ministries degree, and I was in class in my doctor of ministries program and it was early in the morning. Matter of fact, it was, our class started at 7. It was shortly after that that someone came in the room, one of the administrators came in the room and came over to where I was seated at the table and said, follow me. And so I followed them out of the room and into an office, and they said, pick up the phone. And so I pushed up and picked up the phone, and at the other end of the line was Dr. Ed Nelson. He was my pastor. I was co-pastor at that time, but I was, had been an assistant pastor at South Sheridan for many years now, and Dr. Nelson said to me, he said, Les, you need to get on the first flight home. Your infant son died this morning. The paramedics are here. I'm at your house, and they've been unable to revive him. I was in shock. I, I just, those words just kind of rang in my ears, and I, and I just stood there. I literally think I was in shock. And then someone grabbed me by the arm and they said, let's get you to the airport. A good friend, matter of fact, a pastor friend, grabbed my arm, put me in his car and we drove to the airport. I don't know how we got a ticket, but that was when I was scheduled to fly out. It was Friday. I was going to fly out that night, but he put me on a plane. 
And that short flight, I, I wept the whole way to Denver. I'm sure the people seated on each side of me wondered what was going on. When I got to the airport, a close personal friend picked me up and drove me to our house. The paramedics were there. Actually, there were a number of people there from our church. When I came in, they uh, had allowed Clinton to remain at the home. They didn't take him away at that point, so I could hold him. And I held our infant son in my arm for a few minutes, his cold, lifeless body. Then the paramedics took him away, took him to the morgue, the funeral home, and the people filed out. And after they filed out our little family, we were excited when he came into our home and we were destroyed and distraught that he left our home. We gathered around and we wept. Then we wailed. I guess the best way I'd say it, then we wilted. We wept, then we wailed at the top of our voices, and then we wilted. The next few days, including up to the funeral, that was a Friday, funeral was on Monday. The next few days really were a blur. I don't even really remember them very well. Matter of fact, Bible conference was going on. We hold a Bible conference in our church every year during the month of January. Bible conference was going on. Mike Harding, one of my good friends, was here in town preaching at the Bible conference. But the funeral was Monday. I've said it before, I just wanted to crawl into the casket, take my family with me, and close it up. I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. I was torn by grief. I was in agony of spirit. I was struggling with my God. I had felt rejection from my family for accepting Christ and leaving the Catholic Church and then studying for the ministry and leaving engineering. And I've been told, don't come home, you're not welcome here. And I thought to God, this is what I get for serving you, for following you. You take my son. I fought not to do what Job's wife said to him. Job's wife said, curse God and die. Well, the steps towards restoration were slow and they were precarious. First was letting go of my anger towards God. Hate to tell you that, but it's true. It's not uncommon. But I first had to let go of my anger towards God. Following that, there was an acceptance that God does all things well and with a purpose. God has purpose in mind whatever he brings into our life. So I had to accept that. And then finally, sometime later, there was a thankfulness that God uses even sorrow and death for his glory. Very rarely do I preach a funeral without mentioning losing a loved one like my own son or going to Crown Hill and mentioning that my son is buried right over there in baby land. We've had the opportunity to counsel many people who've lost children 
or loved ones. Now, my abrupt confrontation with grief no doubt will have some common denominators with others who've trod a similar path. All the circumstances aren't going to be the same, but there's going to be some common denominators. That's for sure. For some, loss or grief is going to be more emotional. For others, the effects are going to be more physical. It impacts them physically. For others, it's primarily spiritual. What is grief? Theologically speaking, theologically, grief is what happens when our image of God comes into close personal and painful collision with the ramifications of the fall. We understand God, that he is light and that he is love, and then we come into the collision point that this fallen world, that in spite of who God is, we live in a fallen world. Then grief hits us. We are forced to stare face to face into the ugly realities of the curse. We're looking it right in the eyes and saying, so this is the result of the curse? Yes, it is. Scripture doesn't use the technical term, our modern day term, grief, but it does use words that express the same universal experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and there Paul uses, notice the terms that he uses. He says, I am troubled. His soul is troubled. He says, I am perplexed. In other words, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. He says, I'm troubled. I'm perplexed. I am struck down. That means knocked down. You're knocked down on your back. You're knocked down on your face. You don't want to move. Paul uses those terms. The psalmist's descriptions are even more picturesque and more vivid, I think. The Bible says in Psalm 6, verse 3, my soul is sore vexed. In other words, like somebody is wringing out my soul. It's sore vexed. It hurts. Another place, he says, I water my couch with my tears. My my crying, my weeping, my tears are, are uncontrollable. I soak my couch with my tears. My soul is cast down within me. Psalm 42, verse 6. My soul is sunk. It's hit bottom. I've hit bottom. Now, the language has changed in the last 2,500 years, but the experience hasn't. The experience hasn't. Because sin exists, grief and suffering exist as well. I don't know how else to say it. Because sin is a reality in this world, grief and suffering are realities that all of us will face in this life. Let's talk about it. I've ordered my thoughts around three headings here. First of all, life in a fallen world hurts. Life in a fallen world hurts. Let me say something to you this morning. Grief is not a sign of weakness it's not a sign of wickedness. It's not a sign of selfishness or sinfulness or even a lack of faith. Grief is not any of those. However, depending upon our response to grief, our response to suffering, our response to sorrow, 
It can descend, it can transition into any one of those sinful emotions, depending upon how we respond to it, determines where we end up at. Grief is the reckoning of our souls with the reality that creation has been broken by sin. As I said earlier, it's looking the curse Eyeball to eyeball is coming to face the curse and realizing this world is broken. Even though we have a wonderful, good, holy, righteous God, this world is broken. When presented with such situations, the psalmist cried out, and I want to read a few of them. There are many. He cried out with emotional questions, questioning God. And frankly, they're questions that most of us would probably feel uncomfortable saying to God. But God welcomes them. Notice what he says. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why, why are you ignoring me? Why aren't you listening to me? Why don't I sense your presence? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? We sometimes feel that way. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have I been wiped out of your mind? You forget that I exist and that I exist and that I hurt. How long will you hide your face from me, he says. Psalm 42, verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, the immovable one, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Why am I living in the state of mournful oppression? Psalm 44, verse 23, awake. <laughs> That's pushing it. He says, awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? And the Bible says the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. But he says, why, O Lord, are you asleep to my situation? Arise. Do not cast us off forever. Don't forget about it. Don't shove us to the edge of society. Don't forget about me, Lord. He says in Psalm 103, verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. In other words, God knows what we're made of, and we are made of dust. We are made of the, the very elements that we find in the soil. That's why when someone's buried, they return to the soil, and after the casket and the vault and all that is gone, they return to the very elements of the soil. The Spirit of God has left them. Life, the soul. He says, for he knows our frame. He's admitting how frail we are, how weak we are. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. So we have to remind ourselves that when God created the world, he made it perfect. When God spoke the world into existence in those six days of creation, at the end of the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says that God saw everything that he made and it was all very good. Everything was perfect. God looked at it and a smile of approval was there. He said it's all perfect. It's all very, very good. But when Adam and Eve chose to reject God's authority, sin and death were interjected into this world and it's been here ever since. Romans 5 verse 12 says, through one man's sin, sin entered the world. 
and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. And we've experienced that. Through Adam's sin, sin was brought into the world and it's touched every corner of this world. All humans must die because of Adam's sin. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die. Nobody escapes it. You look at the death rate. It's pretty impressive. It's 100%. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then after this, the judgment, and that death and judgment come because of sin entering the world. But God in his sovereignty, we recognize, manages exactly when that death will occur. I've had to grapple with that reality, and chances are you've had to grapple with that reality. God is sovereign. In other words, he's in control of everything and everybody, and his timing is perfect. It's foreordained, the Bible tells us, that not a sparrow falls to the ground without him observing it, let alone mankind falling to the ground. God in his sovereignty is managing exactly when death will occur, and he's going to use that. Now, death is not a good thing. I think we'd all admit that. Death is not a good thing. And by the way, it wasn't part of the original plan either. It wasn't part of God's original plan. Death is not a good thing. Matter of fact, it is the ultimate affront to the image of God. God is life. Death is an affront to the God of life. So we recognize death is not a good thing. It is the last enemy. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, it is the last enemy that Christ will destroy is death. He's going to abolish it, do away with it, eradicate it. It's gone. If creation groans under the agony of the curse in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, says that creation, that means the mountains, the sea, the plant, the animals, everything that God has created, all of creation groans in agony under the curse, the Bible says in Romans 8, 22. And if the creation groans under the curse, certainly those of us who are made in the image of God, in the image of the divine, feel the weight of that burden with greater excess. And that's exactly what Romans 8.23 says, the very next verse. The creation groans, but mankind groans like a woman in childbearing and is longing to be delivered, longing for the redemption of not just this planet, but of our souls and the sadness that characterizes this world, most boldly by death itself. When we sorrow over pain or illness or death, we become better acquainted with the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, verse 3, who bore our griefs. There's the very word. He was a man of sorrows who bore our griefs. So when we go through times of sorrow, when we go through times of grief, we're identifying, we understand better, we can put ourselves in a place of ministry as Jesus did. 
When we cry out to God because we're confused at his permission of some tragic event that we do not understand, we with Jesus, when the psalmist said, and Jesus quoted it in Matthew 27, it's found in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can say that. Jesus said that. And it wasn't blasphemous. He was expressing his feelings. He was expressing his emotions. And he was trusting God. He said, my God, my God, why? I don't understand why has this happened. So part of the Christian experience is learning. It's certainly learning in times of sorrow and grief and sadness. We must learn to cast all of our cares upon him. 1 Peter 5, 7, because he cares for us. So I ask you today, when you're going through grief and you're going through sadness and you're going through heartache, you're going through great disappointments in your life, do you say, God, here's my cares, here's my worries, here's my heartache, I'm casting them into your lap. I don't want to carry them. I want to trust you. I want to believe in you. Casting all our cares upon him. And that's a practice. That's a discipline that we have to learn, that we have to practice. Or we're going to carry those hurts with us. And it's going to change our view of God and life and the whole process of sanctification. Life in a fallen world hurts. We would all say yes, amen, that's right. Number two, pain can prepare us for ministry. I was leading into that. Pain can prepare us for ministry. All of us are experiencing the effects of the fall in our lives. We do on a regular basis. Some of the things we would like to do, we don't. Can't. All of us are experiencing the effects of the fall in our lives. Sin's disruptive tendrils have extended itself into every corner of the world, into every inhabitant. We feel its tendrils. Grief in itself is not inherently selfish. It's a natural, normal, human, emotional response. Grief is a natural, normal, human response. But, and I put a big statement there, I underline it and underscore, but it does present the opportunity To every single one of us, it presents the opportunity for us to respond wrong. For selfish thoughts, selfish actions. Let me give you a few examples. Well, grief happens and we can become bitter. God hasn't been fair to me. He hasn't been just and right to me. This shouldn't have happened. That person shouldn't have died. My marriage shouldn't have ended. That child should have been born like any other child. Bitterness can set in. Or we can withdraw. I'm done. It's over. I'm the loser. The world can go on. It doesn't need me. The church doesn't need me. Believers don't need me. I'll just withdraw into my little cocoon. 
Or we can say, well, I can't trust God anymore. He's let me down one too many times. I'm not going to put my confidence in his word anymore and his promises anymore because I just can't trust him. I've trusted him in the past and it's hurt. Or there's a loss of hope. You're living, but you're an empty shell. There's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no hope in the morrow because of your disappointment. Even though we would say that grief is a natural, normal, human, emotional response, it all depends upon how we react as we're processing grief. Are we processing it as a Christian? Are we processing it as a biblicist? Or are we going to let our emotions take us down? The natural human response to grief is to turn inward. We recognize that. And I realize I'm probably not preaching today, I'm counseling. The natural human response to grief is to turn inward. And that inward gaze can be good. It's good for us to look within on a regular basis. Sometimes we do that at communion, of course. We look within, we confess our sin. God intends for suffering to cause us to reevaluate ourselves in light of his truth. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all who ask. He doesn't deny any who ask for wisdom. So when we look within, that's a natural, normal response. Why did this happen? I don't understand. I'm confused. I'm perplexed. I'm cast down. I'm sore vexed. And we look within, and then God says, ask for wisdom. Ask for grace for what you're going through. But an inward gaze can easily become narcissistic. It can easily become self-absorbed if we park ourselves there. If we don't move on in progression in allowing the Word of God and the Spirit of God to minister to us. A key passage for those going through suffering is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I've used it many times in the hospital, visiting people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, our trials, our heartaches, our grief, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are also in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted God. So this is the Christian life. God, I need your help. I'm hurting. And God gives us comfort. It ministers to our soul, and we experience that. And then we run into someone else who's suffering, and we give them that same grace. We pass on that comfort, that consolation, that grace to them. That's what he's telling us here, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are also in trouble with the comfort which we've been comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation abounds in us. As we've suffered and we've experienced the consolation, the comfort of God, that becomes growing. Sufferings grow. Sufferings happen. Comfort happens. Comfort grows. Or 
is he goes on to say, now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and your salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Now they were suffering for the gospel as Paul was talking about. He had suffered for the gospel, but it's applicable. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Goes on to say, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you will also be partakers of the consolation, the comfort that is in Christ. Here we find instead of self-pity, which any of us can have a tendency to fall into, into the quagmire, the slew of despond, as Pilgrim's Progress says, instead of self-pity, suffering can enable a believer to have a greater ministry and a more effective ministry to others who need to become acquainted with the comfort of God, the mercies of God, the comfort of God. So in other words, suffering can expand our ministry if we respond to it. It can enlarge our borders of what we do for God. If we allow God to minister to us, we can pass it on to others. Now, you know that Paul's itinerant preaching ministry caused him much suffering. In some places, he recounted, I suffered three days in the deep. Thrice I was beaten with rods, suffered from the attack of wild animals. I was chased out of town by the Jews multiple times. I received 40 lashes, save one multiple times. He talks about all of these things, asleep in the woods and, and in danger of my countrymen. He, he talks about all the deprivation that he suffered. Paul's suffering and sickness and his health problems is what brought him to Corinth. And as a result of coming to Corinth, he's saying, it was a result of my suffering that you were saved and are now being sanctified. It was my suffering that brought me to you. You get the equation? Paul uses himself as exhibit A. My suffering brought about your salvation and your sanctification, and your suffering can bring about other people's salvation and their sanctification if you'll use this comfort that you've experienced and not descend into self-pity. So here's the principle. The principle, the second idea here, the principle is this. Suffering equips Christ's followers to be better servants. Suffering preps us to be better servants of Christ. That's what he's teaching. That's what the Bible teaches. And there's no greater example of that, no greater example exists than, than of our Lord, who being equal with God, Philippians chapter 2 says, who being equal with God, on the same plane, he was God. Second person of the Trinity, who being equal with God, in other words, he had all that God enjoyed, gave it up. The kenosis passage, we call it, it means to empty yourself in the Greek language. It's he emptied himself of all, not his, his deity, but all of his glory. And what does the Bible say? He took upon himself the form of a servant and he suffered. Of course, we, he not just suffered in life, he suffered on the cross, the ignominious death, the painful death of the cross. And before he went to the cross, the night before he went to the cross, he did the servant thing. We all know he took his clothes off, girded himself with a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. And he washed the feet of the very one that was going to betray him in the next couple of hours, Judas. So here's this example. He's God. He descends all the way to become a man, the God-man, and he suffers 
and he plies his trade as a servant. It opens up ministry opportunities for all of us. And what does he say in that passage? Let this mind be in you. Not, God, I don't deserve this. God, you're not being fair with me. God, this doesn't make sense. Sure, we might ask those questions initially, but we can't stay there. But let this mind be in you. In other words, think like Christ. Act like Christ. Be a servant like Christ. Suffer like Christ, is what he's saying. Let this mind be in you. Third and finally, I have good news. Suffering has an expiration date. Sometimes I'll go to the refrigerator and I'll say, hey, where'd that stuff go? I was going to use it, that cheese, that, you know, that nacho cheese or whatever. And Starry said, I threw it out. It was way past expiration date. It's like, come on, expiration date? Sometimes I say to the young staff members here, hey, take it easy. I got stuff in my refrigerator that's older than you. <laughs> Don't tell me too much, you know. Suffering has an expiration date. There's hope. There's hope. We live in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. But there's hope. The comfort that we are commanded to share is not some wishy-washy, trite platitudes that you find on a Hallmark card. Or everything's going to work out. It's not some wishy-washy, trite platitude. No, it is the bedrock promises in the Word of God. It is the sure hope of our God being sovereign, that, that He has control over everything, and someday suffering and death will be eliminated from our existence. That's the hope that we have. We must remember our Savior is present with us in all of our trials. Don't Think just because you don't sense his presence that he isn't there, because he is. We must remember our Savior is present with us in all of our trials, both to encourage us. That's what the passage we just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We receive mercy. We receive comfort. So we're going to comfort others. So he's with us in all our trials, both to encourage us and to use these fiery trials to sanctify us, because that's what it's all about. From heaven's perspective, it's all about sanctifying us as believers. That's why James says, James chapter 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Count it joy. Now, it, literally the word there is an accounting term. He says, when you fall into trials, when you fall into sorrows, when you fall into grief, get the ledger out. Get the accounting ledger out and write down on one side, trial, and on the other side, write down blessing. Write down God's accompaniment because the trials can be translated into blessings if you allow them. He's talking to us about in our mind reckoning that our trials can become joy. My brethren, count it all joy. Count it. That's an accounting term. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. If we're thinking biblically, when we fall into trial, we say, I know God's got something good coming from this for me. That's not a platitude. That's a word of God. Suffering exists because sin exists. 
But God and his sovereignty can use that suffering to bring about great spiritual good. Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God, it says. So if you're here today and say, I love God, and I know I'm his child, I'm, I'm trying to follow his path, do according to his purposes, God says all the things that he allows to come through his hand and into your life are for your, not for your comfort, not for your convenience, but for your spiritual good. That's what he says. To grow you up. To make you more Christ-like. Someday we'll be able to say, as Joseph did near the end of his days. Remember, his brothers sold him into slavery. And then he went into prison because Potiphar's wife lied about him. He was in prison for 13 years. Then he catapulted the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And his brothers thought for sure once his, their father Jacob was gone that his wrath would be unleashed against them. And Joseph says with such perfect theology, he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And the phrase goes on to say, to save many people alive. Yeah, there were some evil intentions on your part, but it had to go through the filter of God. It had to go through the sovereign control of God. And God took that evil intention that you had and he used it for purpose, uh, for the good purpose of saving you alive. That's what he tells them. What perfect New Testament theology Joseph recites. So first, God allows us to go through trials to sanctify a second we must remembering that our suffering, this is what Paul says. You may not feel it. I don't feel it all the time. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Our suffering is a temporary light affliction that is but for a moment. Those are the words. Our suffering is but a light, temporary, but for a moment affliction. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like, this is going on forever. Am I ever going to get out of this state of mind and this broken-hearted condition that I'm in? God says it's temporary. It's a light affliction in light of eternity, in light of heaven. This is nothing. And Paul was talking about all that he had suffered that I mentioned earlier, beatings and shipwreck and being chased and hunted. Suffering exists because sin exists, but... God will one day remove both suffering and sin. Suffering has an expiration date. This is not all there is. If you're a blood-bought saint, you belong to God, someday all tears will be wiped away. Someone brought to our house sometime after Clinton died a little figurine. And it had an angel wiping away tears with that verse on it. All tears will be wiped away. God wipes away all tears. And it's joy. It's bliss unimaginable. It's perfection. It's glory. 
so the Lord will redeem these frail temporal bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. These frail temporal grief-prone bodies are going to be redeemed. And the very earth itself will be redeemed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Every trace of sin will be gone. And after he deals with the great deceiver, Satan, the new heavens and the new earth will be established. And the Bible says in Revelation 21, verse 3, and the dwelling place of God, that's heaven, the dwelling place of God will come to be with men. Heaven comes down. It doesn't say necessarily we go up. We understand that. But heaven comes down. The dwelling place of God will be with men. So hang on. Respond properly. Respond biblically to the grief, the sorrow, the heartache that is part and parcel of your life as long as we're in a sin-cursed world. This is the truth which Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. He says, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words, the words that we've looked at here this morning. Comfort one another with these words. It is our confidence in these words that produces joy in spite of trials, suffering, and grief. Confidence trust in his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're with us. Every believer here today, even though sometimes when we go through trials, we may feel like, where are you, Lord? We may even say that. And we become perplexed because your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and your ways greater than our ways. And you know our frame. We're our dust. We're simple. We're inept, we're weak, but help us to train our thoughts in the Word of God. Help us to claim the promises and to make them our own so we can respond. Yes, grief is part of life, but that we can respond and climb out of it and we can use it as an opportunity for greater ministry and servitude to you. While our heads are bowed, let me just encourage you right here this morning, to do business with God. All of us have our sinful tendencies and our thoughts about God that are not in alignment with the Scriptures. Bring them in alignment here even this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.